have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner My guest today on Spirit in Action is Virginia Woolf. Virginia is the minister at the local Unitarian Universalist congregation here in Eau Claire. She's been serving there for seven years. She spent 25 years as a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. And this past year, she's got involved with FAIR Wisconsin, opposing the constitutional amendment which has been proposed to restrict marriage within Wisconsin. Virginia, welcome to Spirit in Action. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So, Virginia, tell me about this constitutional amendment, what its impact would be if it were passed in November, and what your group is working to do. The impact of this amendment would be twofold. One, it's very harmful to many families here in Wisconsin. There are many same-sex-led families here in the state. They would be affected in Well, I think they're prohibited from about 1,400 rights because they're not able to get married. I can speak at length later about how, in particular, specific people I know have been harmed, but the first thing that would be bad about this constitutional amendment is that it would hurt real Wisconsin families. And secondly, this amendment really goes too far, whereas the first part of it would ban same-sex marriage. The second part would prohibit any legal protections comparable to marriage for unmarried couples, be they heterosexual or homosexual. This, well, in 11 states it's become legal. It's passed, the constitutional amendment. And now in those states, such as Ohio and Michigan and Utah, Lawyers are arguing that domestic partnerships are no longer legal and that domestic abuse laws will no longer apply where there are unmarried couples. For the most part, this has really affected heterosexual couples so that restraining orders are no longer in effect. And if you have health care benefits through your corporation, those are being challenged. So it's quite a far-reaching proposal that we have, one that the federal government tried to get passed and they abandoned because they felt that it was too far-reaching and have changed. But in our state, we are going with that sort of original language that is very far-reaching. What is the text of the amendment which is being proposed? The amendment reads as follows, the proposed amendment. Only a marriage between one man and one woman shall be valid or recognized as a marriage in the state. 
a legal status identical or substantially similar to that of marriage for unmarried individuals is not valid or recognized in this state. You got involved in organizing this some time ago. Aren't you the key person who was first contacted here in the Chippewa Valley to get things organized here to oppose this amendment? Yes, I was. I think it's because Carol and I both applied for a marriage license last year and were refused, and so we're known by the fair Wisconsin people. Also, we're involved in an ACLU suit for domestic partnerships for state employees. So we've been known for a long time to the people at Fair Wisconsin, and there have been a couple of articles, I think, in the local paper about us, and so we were, I think, kind of logical people for them to tap. Who's involved in the local group? Well, we started off our meetings with people who were interested in being trained to be speakers against this amendment. And we have, in fact, a Speakers Bureau available here in the Eau Claire area so that if anybody's interested in having a speaker come and talk about this amendment and what its effects would be, they can contact me and I'll put them in charge or in, in touch with somebody. We began that way, but then we evolved into what's called the Eau Claire Action Network of Fair Wisconsin. And we're doing a lot of things. One of the things we're doing is monitoring the media because, of course, we want to make sure that if something is said, it's accurate. And so if we hear an inaccuracy, we report it to the state, and then they try to get a response in the media. We're also leafleting, and we're going to be going door-to-door. I think May 20th is our big effort to try to register voters. So we're trying to go out and go door-to-door and talk to people. One of the things that we've found is that many people don't know anything about this amendment. It's like it's under the radar. And so all of a sudden, they find out. It's been interesting. One of our people who has been going door-to-door has spoken a lot with seniors. And, of course, there are many seniors who are living together and not married because of pension issues. So if they get married, they are going to lose their former spouse's pension. And to think that now that laws might not cover them because they're not legally married. So it's an issue for seniors and as well as for anyone else who's, for whatever reasons, has chosen not to be married but to be in a long-term partnership. We're also having house parties at which we're educating and coffees at which we're educating, so those would be kind of fun. And we're trying to have a presence at local events like the things that happen in the parks and so forth so that mostly we just want people to know about this so that they're not just voting without thinking about it or without knowing what the ramifications might be. And who are the other people who are involved? Are these being drawn from just individuals, or are there organizations, churches involved in this? There are individuals from all over who have perhaps a gay or lesbian relative, or perhaps the individuals are gay or lesbian. But there are many, many heterosexual people who are coming, and some of them are coming from faith-based organizations, churches, in other words. United Church of Christ is outspoken in its opposition to this amendment. The United Methodists have also been. There's some division in some of the other churches, but I think still some strong support from Lutheran churches here in town, too. I think the amazing thing is that there are so many people, because I think probably over the course of the time that we've been meeting, we've had about 150 people, and they just come from everywhere. You know, people have found out about the amendment and are interested in working to be sure that we don't get one. You mentioned there was some maybe 1,400 different rights that would be denied to people who would no longer qualify under this amendment. What kind of rights are we talking about? How would these affect people's lives in reality? There are so many of these rights. I suppose the one that we all think of first is health care, of course, is you can't have health care. If you are employed and your colleague has family coverage, you can't have family coverage because you're not allowed to get married. Part of the difficulty here, of course, for us is the language because many people think of marriage as a religious sacrament. I'm really talking about civil marriage. If churches want to continue not to marry same-sex people. That's their choice. I'm really not trying to change that. Civil marriage, it's like a contract, and that's not available. So you can't provide protections for your family. I know women whose partners are 
ill and in serious need of health care and can't work. And the one woman in the relationship has a great job and great health care benefits and can't do anything for her partner. That, of course, becomes a draining thing because much of their income is going to trying to treat the illness and get the person well. Or their children. I mean, um, many people may not believe that lesbians and gays should be parents, but they are. That's a flat fact. Many of us have children. And, in fact, the research shows that our children grow up to be pretty much on par with heterosexual children. So, in fact, most of them become heterosexual because most people do become heterosexual. But in any case, you can't provide protection for your children. The whole issue of children, in fact, is such a complicated one. And Carol and I are now past that because our two kids are adults. But when they were at home, you know, we had to make special... Well, first, we didn't make special arrangements. And so my son broke his arm, right, and... Carol took him to the hospital, and he needed an operation, and they wouldn't treat him because she wasn't the parent. So they had to track me down. I was out of town. I was at a conference. And so my son was in some pain much longer than he needed to be until they could finally contact me. Had she been legally his other mother, it would not have been an issue. We did correct that by putting something on file at both hospitals so that it never happened again, but it did happen that once. Or at school, the same thing goes on, you know. I mean, you're not a legal parent, so you can't go to parent-teacher conferences or have the same kind of official role that a legal parent would have. So we ran into those sort of issues. We personally are more concerned at this stage in our life about end-of-life kinds of things. What happens if I am unconscious and ill in the hospital? We have done everything we can as far as legal protections that are available to us. But you have to have that piece of paper in your hand that says that you have legal power for health care and financial decisions as well. well. I one time had an accident, and we were on the beach, so we had bathing suits. Well, guess what? We didn't have our papers with us. Fortunately, the people who took me to the hospital... Uh, It was a near-drowning experience, and so the people who took me to the hospital were relatives of Carol's, so (laughs) they knew, you know, and they let her go with me and be with me and so forth, but that might not have happened. And the other issue is a visitation in the hospital. While most of the time, if you say, this is my partner, people will treat you with fairness if you're unhealthy and so forth, but they don't have to whereas a spouse would be automatically able to enter an examination room or be with you while you were in poor health or in a crisis situation. It really depends to some extent on the courtesy of the people who happen to be there. And I one time had a bad experience here in Eau Claire when I thought I was having a heart attack. And, of course, who did I want by my side more than anybody in the whole world so that I could feel somewhat calm about what was happening to me? But my partner... And the nurse who was treating me wouldn't let her be with me. I was so agitated and, you know, raised such a fit, and she was so worried about my health that eventually she did let her come in. But that shouldn't happen. That sort of thing shouldn't happen. I also think about things like, and this, of course, is not going to be helped by the state. This is a federal issue, but there are Social Security for the children won't go won't happen if it's the non-biological person. Like if, for example, if something would have happened to Carol when the children were young and they would have gotten Social Security benefits had she been a father and been legally married, that would not happen. Or disability benefits, the same thing would be true. One of the things I just found out that really I have to do something about now is what happens if I have to go to a nursing home? We own our house together. If we were a married couple, they could take the house, you know, the value of the house, but they couldn't evict Carol until she could stay there till she died. Well, that isn't the way it's going to be for us. She would be considered the half-owner of the house, and they could force her to sell the house to recover my half to pay for my nursing care. So these are, I mean, these are just all things that we don't think about, the way in which, you know, if you get married, you can protect your partner and your family, you know, your children. And the other thing I have to say is we spend a lot of money on wills and legal power of this and legal power of that that most people don't have to spend. 
because, you know, they just automatically have it because they're married. So that's another issue. It's just an unfair thing. Does that answer your question? I could go on. I mean, there are, there are other things, too. Let me say just one more thing that is really a very troublesome, and I know a couple here in Eau Claire who have just adopted two little boys. One of them adopted the two little boys because only one person can adopt. They can't both adopt. Now, in Minnesota, they've changed that. So I have two friends there who have a little girl. Actually, one of the women was artificially inseminated so that they raised this girl since she was a baby. She's 18 now. They were allowed to both adopt. And that was one of those situations, too, where one of them had a great job and great health care benefits, and the other one didn't. And the one that had the benefits did, in fact, get health care coverage for her daughter, but, of course, not for her partner. But they did, finally. They are now both legally the parents of Emily. How does that come about? Is Minnesota state law changed to permit that, or how did they both become parents? Minnesota law has changed. One woman is the biological mother, and the other woman is the adopted mother. They're allowing now in Minnesota and also in California. You shouldn't be too surprised, I suppose, but that's where it started. In fact, a judge, a lesbian judge, first sued for the right to adopt her partner's biological child, and it went through there, and now it's gone through Minnesota too. You were talking about the legal implications of this constitutional amendment. I'm sure that there's implications in terms of the mindset of people in the state. You mentioned a nurse who was not allowing Carol in to visit you. I'm assuming some of the implications are just going to be in terms of the personal climate that you'll experience and the emotional and mental anguish. The one thing that really bugs me, especially the older I get, is that When people think about gay and lesbian couples, they think about sex. It's really not about sex. It's about family. And I think that's really what this whole thing is about. I mean, there are so many ways in which people don't realize. They just make assumptions. Well, we have a lot of friends who just assume we have health care coverage for the other because they know us as a couple and they don't even think about the fact that we can't get health care one for the other. People that don't know gay and lesbian couples, and Carol and I have been together for 30 years. I mean, essentially, we're married. We were married in our church 15 years ago. They don't think, like when they give an invitation, when people give invitations to parties, they say, bring your wife or husband, right? Why not bring your spouse or bring your partner? It's just this sort of oblivion about this whole group of people, 10% of the population, they say. I would guess given the number of people I know who are gay and lesbian in this area, that's probably a fair percentage. Here we are, and many of us are living in long-term relationships, and it's sort of like we don't exist, or people don't ever think about us, or they don't even think about the ways in which just little ordinary things. When I took a new job at Stout one time, my boss asked me, what does your husband do? Just this sort of automatic assumption. And, you know, I seem like a normal, healthy female, so I I think I am a normal, healthy female. So why not just, what does your spouse do? Carol has pictures of our kids and grandkids at work. But people, they don't, of course, anymore. After all these years, they all know that they're her kids and her grandkids. But, you know, for a long time, that wasn't the case. And, you know, so people would come in and they would say, oh, who are these you know, every single time she would have to explain. Most people, I do this, don't you? I go to the dentist's office, I see my dental hygienist, and she's got pictures of her kids and her husband, you know, and I say, oh, is that your family? That hasn't happened to us. But I think the big point of this whole thing is for people to start thinking about us as families, because that's what we are, families with kids, grandkids, homes, mortgages. Were both you and Carol married before in heterosexual relationships? Is that where your kids came from, or did you adopt, and how did that work out? Carol has never been married. I was married for nine years, and the children are mine biologically. But we've been together since David was four and Nina was eight and a half. They're now 35 and 40, so... 
Carol has parented them all these years and has been a steady part of their lives and now is a steady part of their children's lives. And so they really are her kids in the same way that would happen in any kind of step-parent situation.
Sometimes I'm kind of amazed at the backwardness of people fighting against gay marriage. As I recall, one of the issues that I was told about when I was just young, when I didn't even know about homosexuality, but I heard this word queers, was that the danger with queers is that they want to have sex with everyone, and they're going to grab you and pull you into some room, and they're going to have sex with you. And that marriage is actually saying, no, I want to commit, I want to be in a relationship, I want to be stable. Why is it you think that so many people are afraid of homosexuals being in stable relationships? I don't know if they're afraid of homosexuals being in stable relationships. I think the weird thing about this is, though, that you would think that people would want this, that they would want for everyone, no matter what their sexual orientation, to be able to find someone with whom they can spend a life and make a home and raise children and be contributing members to society and not be some fringe crazy group, which is the way I think most people think about gays and lesbians because of what they see in the newspaper and on TV. It doesn't make any sense to me why people wouldn't want this. I think it must be some kind of a hang-up about the way things have always been or something, you know, that their marriage has always been considered to be between one man and one woman, although, of course, it's not always been that way. In fact, polygamy for years was a standard form of marriage. I mean, even in the Bible, there are many, many examples of polygamy, starting with Abraham. But I think it must be that, and maybe the whole notion that marriage is a sacrament Quite frankly, I think it is a sacrament, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I might not be so upset about offering it to same-sex couples, but I'm not upset at all about doing that. I have been doing services of union for a long, long time, but, of course, I can't sign a marriage license for those couples. The thing that really disturbs me about this is that this is a way to normalize gay and lesbian relationships so that... Individuals in those relationships don't feel marginalized or weirdized. That's not a word, but (laughs) as an English professor. But I mean, I think sometimes that being pushed aside or under the radar or ignored or thought of as being weird and crazy or just wildly sexual beings or something, that it encourages people to be that way, I think, you know, if the society thinks about them in that way. I think if we thought about them in different ways, if we thought about that couples could be formed and and marriages and families and so forth were possible and so forth, we'd have people who were just healthier as a result of being thought of as okay, whereas now that's not the case at all. I think a lot of changes have happened since 1969. I think that we are more and more healthy as a people. But, you know, you have to fight the society with every ounce of your being. You have to get rid of your own internalized homophobia that you've inherited from your society before you can start to grow your health. This would be a way. But, of course, I know that many people don't want to normalize homosexual relationships, you know, because they've been taught by their church that homosexuality is a sin and uh, we're going to go to hell and so forth. Well, speaking of hell, I have definitely heard from a lot of people who think that it's anti-biblical to have same-sex relationships. And I've read passages in Leviticus that definitely oppose that. Of course, there's passages in Leviticus opposing just about everything and some of the most trivial things. But how do you deal with it theologically? How do you deal with the fact that people, particularly if they consider themselves Christian, say, the Bible is just opposed to this, it's wrong? Well, you know, the whole thing about biblical interpretation is an interesting one. Uh, Which Bible? There are many, many translations. Are the words really translated correctly? I mean, there wasn't a word for homosexuality. That's a modern word. So to say that homosexual marriage is labeled a sin and by the Bible is to do a lot of interpreting because there was no such thing as There wasn't a concept of homosexuality. There wasn't a concept of homosexual lifestyle, whatever in the world that is. Those are all modern terms, especially Leviticus. The Leviticus ones, 
There are so many scholars who have pointed out that, in particular, those references are to rape, then they're to inhospitality, because, I mean, these are God's angels, right, that are sent to Sodom, and the men of Sodom come out and say, let us know them, right? That would be a horrible thing by Middle Eastern morality of the time, a horrible breach of hospitality, which is one of the central and crucial values for survival during that time, because if you're traveling in the desert and somebody wouldn't take you in and keep you safe, you'd be in bad trouble. So, And it's a whole gang of men. So we're not talking about a loving relationship between two individuals of the same gender. We're talking about a rape, a, a violent thing. And of course, some of the references are to prostitution, homosexual prostitution, which was common in the time. You know, I'm not particularly in favor of prostitution either, whether it's same-sex or heterosexual. So I think some of it has to do with reading the interpretation of the Bible, what language you actually see there, what the context has to tell us about what those passages mean. I always find the more troublesome passages to be the ones in Paul. Again, I've been told, I've read, that those have to do with prostitution too, or they have to do with relationships outside of marriage perhaps probably by people who are already married. So it's a whole different historical context from what we have today. And I think that one of the things that has happened over the centuries is that we have grown enough in terms of gay liberation that we no longer buy into some of the stereotypes that have come down to us historically. So we're really talking about a whole different situation. We're talking about people who are steady, respectable citizens of the community wanting to have a loving relationship with a person of the same sex, probably because that's what their natural proclivity is. And we do know that there has always been homosexuality and Even in the animal world, there's homosexualities. So, you know, God made us this way, so we shouldn't live this way. I've heard it denied that anyone could be born gay or lesbian. I think that the standard view used to be that it was a medical, psychological aberration, something bad in your life that turned you to the dark side or something, I don't know. What about your own experience? You were in a heterosexual marriage. Was this something that changed in you, or were you finding your roots? Were you uncovering what was natural for you, or what do you think happened in your case? I think this is an enormously complicated question. You know, I can only offer an opinion, and I can speak from my personal experience. The way I see it is that I think people are born on a continuum from homosexual to heterosexual, and some people are really profoundly homosexual at birth, and they know from the time they're very small that they don't fit the heterosexual gender patterns, and it's a struggle for them. And I, in fact, my partner has told me that that's what she believes is true for her, that she's just never really had any heterosexual leanings at all. I actually had my first profound relationship with a woman. I was 19 years old. It was not a good time. It was 1959, and the dean told us that if we saw each other, because we were found out, if we saw each other during our senior year, we'd be expelled, and so we didn't. We're also both heavily encouraged to enter counseling to get fixed. So I did years of counseling and then psychoanalysis at the Menningers and so forth, and I thought I was fixed, and I got married, and... I guess I wasn't. (laughs) Although, uh, you know, I mean, for me, it was profoundly an experience of affectional orientation, if that makes any sense to you. I just, um, affectionately, I find myself drawn to other women. It's an emotional thing as much for me as it is anything else. Interestingly enough, I've had lots of good male friends. So it isn't a question of not liking men, but it's just a question of having different needs in those relationships so that I'm much more likely to enjoy intellectual conversation and debate and that sort of thing with men than I am with women. And with women, I'm much more likely to get my emotional needs met. I want to come back to the religious viewpoint on this, the religious pro and con. 
the United States, most people here at this point, come out of a Christian and a Judeo-Christian background. Are attitudes towards homosexuality the same in non-Christian, non-Jewish countries of the world? Do Buddhists and Shintos and Confucians all have attitudes against lesbians? And is marriage everywhere in the world defined as one man, one woman? No, it isn't actually. Uh, Great Britain and the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, Canada, and South Africa, marriage. Actually, I think in Israel. I could be wrong about that. But there's uh, more tolerance, I think, of gay relationships. Of course, not among conservative Jews or Orthodox Jews, but among Reformed Jews. The Buddhists, I think probably in Asian countries, I really don't know, but I would suspect that homosexuality is not socially widely accepted. But I don't really know. I do know that, not too surprisingly, there are a fair number of lesbian and gay people in India, and there are a number of films now, quite wonderful films, and there is a movement for acceptance. So I think worldwide there's just greater and greater openness and acceptance although that's probably more the Western world than it is the Eastern world. I really don't know what the facts are. I'd have to study it. Actually, I did a paper one time on homosexuality and the world's religions, and I found that, well, there are some things that have been written about that and some research that's been done on it, and I found that there is a growing acceptance almost everywhere over the last century. I don't know exactly what this means or why this has happened. I can talk more about how it's happened in the United States than elsewhere in the world. I thought I had read somewhere that in Native American practice, and I'm not sure which tribes, that there was an accepted role of homosexuality, at least at certain points in life. More than one, I think, actually. But you know, the interesting thing about a lot of Native American tribes is that the gender roles were so numerous, they didn't just have two, you know, <laughs> male, female, but they accepted a wide range of gender roles. Like there was a role for what we would call a transvestite today. I mean, there's just many, many different gender roles that were just perfectly accepted. Women who could dress like men and yet behave like women most of the time, and women who could dress like men and have a woman as a, a lover and so forth. And the interesting thing about this whole phenomenon is that in some of the nations, they had a role, I can't remember the names now, but they were, they were like two-spirited people. These were people who were homosexual and who maybe dressed and functioned opposite the actual genitalia, not in accordance with that particular role. So if they were men, they were dressed and acted like women. But they were considered wiser for their double identity, their double gender identity. They were often religious leaders, uh, shaman. It was thought that because they combined both the male and the female, they had greater access to the spirit world. It's an interesting kind of thing. There's a lot of interesting uh, literature out there about homosexuality throughout the world and how it's been accepted. That one seems one of the wiser ones to me. <laughs> no bias in my part. <laughs> I turned 18 in 1972, and there was a major change going on in our society at that time. Divorce became not horrendous. You could have marriage, mixed marriages. And I'm not referring to races. I'm talking about the fact that my father, a Catholic, married a Lutheran woman, where that had been abhorrent maybe 10 years earlier. He was able to do that in the 1960s. The other thing that became acceptable or just taken for granted in the course of the 1970s was living together, that is to say, not being married. And I've heard a lot of people argue passionately why one should not get married. What's your thought about what the purpose or importance of marriage is? You've been talking about civil marriage, and you're also talking about the sacred act of marriage. What, from your point of view, is why you and Carol are married? We got married because we wished to affirm ourselves as a family in our community, in our religious community, and to our friends and other people who knew us outside of the church. That was our most important reason for wanting to get married, was to affirm our relationship publicly. It had been affirmed for 15 years before that privately. For both of us, it was a commitment to a lifelong relationship. I think in the early years, as we struggled to sort of deal with our own 
sexual orientation and to deal with the world and to deal with having a family and all that, there was always some question that it might not last. But I think we had matured enough that we were ready to make that lifelong commitment. It was important for us to do that. I also think that it was a sacred event because it occurred in a church. It occurred in the presence of the holy, in the words and language and so forth of the service. It affirmed our connection to one another and to the community and to the world and to the divine. And that was important for us. That's one kind of marriage. And I think it's really too bad when that's not available to people in traditional Christian churches. I believe the UCC does do civil unions, and I'm not sure if United Methodist does or not, but I think there are other churches that do the same thing that the Unitarian Universalists have been doing since I actually, I think they tried to track down the earliest ceremony of this kind, and it went back into the late 60s, so we've been doing this for a long time, although officially it was the 80s before the denomination as a whole took a stand. But that's one kind of marriage. And I would have a hard time not having that kind of marriage, but I don't have to worry about it because I had it already. So I'm really talking about a different kind of marriage, which is civil marriage, which is just a contract that affirms to the government, if you like, really, that we are a couple and that we should have the protections that couples and families are given. And I know a lot of people, I had this happen to me when I gave a speech about this at our regional UU conference just recently. One woman said, my partner and I are not going to get married. And then another person in the room said, we're not going to ever get married either. And then, you know, it's that situation where they were married before, they have property independently. If they get married, who gets the property? Do his kids get her property? Well, she doesn't want that to happen. She wants her kids to get her property. And the same thing is true for him. So they've decided just to live in a long-term relationship. For one thing, you know, one of the problems when you go to the hospital and you want to be with your partner, you know, if you're a man and a woman, you can just say, this is my husband, right? Nobody's going to challenge that at all. But if it's two women or two men, well, they might challenge it. You know, I can understand why. Some people are not interested in civil marriage, but that doesn't mean that people who could really profit from the protections of it shouldn't have it, which is what we don't have. I want to ask you a question. This may seem like a challenge, but it's actually just looking for clarification. There are reasons to see differences in the world. For instance, there is a significance between having a partner who's 12 years old when you're 25 years old. There's a reason to see a difference there. There's a a reason to see a difference between, let's say, one person who's a therapist who then chooses to have a relationship with a client who's under his sway, under his control. So there's plenty of reasons to see differences. What are the important differences as regards this situation of marriage? Is there a reason that it should be one man, one woman, one man, five women, five men with five women getting married. Is there a reason to see any of these differences? And what are the implications? I don't know, religiously, psychologically, physically, legally? There's awfully big questions out there. I'm not comfortable with just saying, well, everybody's the same, and so we don't see any differences. We do need to see some differences. There's a French phrase, vive la différence. Remember the difference between men and women. Long live it. Is that a difference that is important in terms of relationships? What is a good reason to encourage or to not encourage a relationship? Well, I think that we're talking about consenting adults. That's one of the things that I would say right off the bat. And the other thing is that for me, and who's going to judge this except the individuals involved, it's got to be a loving relationship, a supportive relationship. I mean, if I think about my own understanding of what marriage is from my own experience, it's making a safe haven for one another, being there for your partner, being there to support no matter what the circumstances might be. It's making a we, a strong place where the two of you can be one facing the world. I can't imagine it being more than two individuals for myself, quite frankly, just because I can't imagine how you can... You have that kind of energy and, you know, that kind of emotional 
strength and wherewithal to maintain a really, truly intimate relationship with more than one other person. But I see this as a place where my relationship is a place where I can be completely vulnerable and completely myself and be accepted and loved. So, Virginia, what would be the implications of this vote when it comes up, if it passes? And I'm not sure exactly even what passing means. Does that mean that something else happens after that, or does it become law right away? It's already been through the legislature twice, so it was passed last year, and it's been passed this year by both the Assembly and the Senate. So now it goes to the voters, and I think it's a two-thirds majority, and then it becomes part of the Constitution. I'm not sure about the precise number, and it will be law. And the other thing is undoubtedly it will be challenged. (laughs) I mean, in all these states it's been challenged. It's going to keep being challenged as being unconstitutional. Because essentially what we're talking about is abridging people's rights, and a constitution doesn't generally do that. It gives rights, but it doesn't abridge. What in your personal foundation is the most important reason, I guess theologically or spiritually, for you to take a stand about this amendment? I mean, I know you have a personal investment, obviously, but what in your spiritual makeup makes it really important to defeat this amendment? Well, I come from the Unitarian Universalist tradition, and one of our first principles is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It seems to me that if you believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person, that would be of people who have a different sexual orientation than most. And that's been the stand of the Unitarian Universalist for a long, long time. The other thing is I remember in seminary, not necessarily the Unitarian Universalist students, but Christian students, talking about what does it mean when Jesus said, who is my neighbor? In fact, there's a book written about that. The homosexual is surely my neighbor, as well as the poor and anybody, actually, any human being is my neighbor. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, then it seems to me that's another reason why this would be important to us. Um, I mean, it's a kind of public affirmation in a way if we were allowed to marry that we're human beings and that we have rights like everyone else. And so that makes it really important to me, too. Also, I believe that our best understanding of God is the statement, God is love. And if that's true, then it seems to me that all of the hatred that I experience from some Christian groups is surely in violation of what the New Testament teaches us. Even if you don't believe that homosexuals should be married, that doesn't really allow one to hate. There's so much fear and hatred and ignorance around this issue. I know that my own personal experience has been that when anybody got to know me and Carol as individuals and know our family, they no longer were homophobic. (laughs) You know, I mean, what's to be afraid of? What's to hate? Two middle-aged Middle class, (laughs) you know, I mean, what's the big deal? So this is one of the things that troubles me a lot. We have cleared off the table, the leftovers say. Wash the dishes and put them away. I have told you a story and tucked you in tight at the end of your knockabout day. As the moon sets its sail, To carry you to sleep Over the midnight sea I will sing you a song No one sang to me May it keep you good company You can be anybody You want to be You can love whomever you will You can travel any country You can travel any country where your heart leads And know I will love you still You can live by yourself You can live by yourself You can gather friends around You can choose one special one And the only measure And the only measure of your words and your deeds Will be the love you leave behind when you're done There 
are girls who grow up strong and bold. There are boys quiet and kind. Some race on ahead, some follow behind, some go in their own way and time. Some women love women, some men love men, some raise children, some never do. You can dream all the day, never reaching the end. Of everything possible for you. Don't be rattled by names, by taunts, by games, but seek out spirits true. If you give your friends the best part of yourself, they will give the same back to you. You can be anybody you want to be. You can love whomever you will. Sing it with us. You can travel any country where your heart beats, and know I will love you still. You can live by yourself. You can gather friends around. Can choose one special one, and the only measure of your words and your deeds will be the love you leave behind when you're done. The love you leave behind when you're done. I'm sure some of our listeners are going to want to follow up on this, Virginia. I think that one place they can go is to the fairwisconsin.org. They're the folks who are organizing it for the state. So just F-A-I-R, wisconsin.org. They'll find lots of resources there. If people want to work with you, get involved with the local group here, how would they get a hold of you? They can call the church. It's 834-0690. If they want more information, they can also go to our Unitarian Universalist website, which is uua.org, and there's an awful lot about same-sex marriage. They were very active in Massachusetts, and in fact, several of the people in that case were, in fact, Unitarian Universalists. So this is something they've been working on for a long, long time. I think that there's a service coming up also for people involved in this issue. In October, I don't know the date right now, but we'll be publicizing it, a group called Christians for Equality, which is very active in the state. It's not going to be a service. It's going to be more like a forum. I believe we have a United Methodist bishop, an Episcopalian bishop, and a I can't remember what they call them, but it's someone higher up in the UCC, the United Church of Christ hierarchy. So there'll be people of some standing talking about this amendment. There's one more thing I wanted to check with you, Virginia. You talked about people being hateful towards gays and lesbians. I experienced myself when I spoke publicly opposed to going into war in Afghanistan. I got a call the next day. Someone said, you tell him he should have gone up with the Twin Towers that because I had thought that there were other alternatives besides going to war, that I should be dead. Surely you've had some of that kind of venom tossed at you and Carol. How have you had the strength to put up with it, to face up to it, and not to return hate in kind? I don't know the answer to how have I had the strength. <laughs> I, I, I mean, for one thing, a lot of the people who have protested articles and so forth that I've had in the paper have done so anonymously, so it's a little hard to be in dialogue with someone who doesn't sign a letter or give their name when they call and leave a message at the church. So that's a little difficult. Personally, I have learned over the years that hating somebody causes me a whole lot more pain than I really want to have. It doesn't do me any good, and I have assumed that they don't know any better, you know, and that's the reason why they respond to me in that way. Some of the worst experiences are being picketed by a church. 
you know, with things like God hates fags and the wages of sin is hell and things of that sort. But I've learned also delightfully to be able to feel perfectly at peace when that's happening because now we generally do a, we collect money, a dollar a minute. You can put in a dollar a minute for however long these people stay. And so we've collected kind of substantial amount of money to do things to help young gay teens or to give to AIDS work or for other gay causes. There are ways of not returning hate with hate because actually you only hurt yourself. Hatred is a very life-killing kind of emotion. Thanks, Virginia, for taking time today. Keep up the good work with FAIR Wisconsin and with ECAN, Eau Claire Action Network. When's the next meeting you're going to have? Next Wednesday, the 17th, May 17th at 6.30 at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation. 421 South Farwell. Thanks again for being here, Virginia. You're welcome. My guest today on Spirit in Action has been Virginia Wolf. She's part of the Eau Claire Action Network, working with Fair Wisconsin to oppose the proposed constitutional amendment to narrowly define marital status and rights in Wisconsin. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, And you'll also find additional links on this program and others via my website. Music featured in this program has included Sister by Chris Williamson, Everything Possible by Fred Small, and we're going to finish with a song by Holly Near called Singing for Our Lives. Theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than to love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness. To love and serve.
joy and selflessness.